Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Upoff Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insights into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 100 of Theatre Forward. Yay! Yes! We made it! A hundred! A milestone! You know, we started this podcast in early 2019. And, you know, our intention was to take the kinds of conversations that we would have around the office about whatever was happening, sort of big picture nationally in our American theatre field, and filter it kind of through our experience and our perspective you know, working with a, you know, small size regional theater company in the Midwest. And it was a perspective that, you know, we honestly thought was kind of missing from the national podcast scene when it came to American theater. And um, so that's kind of been our our perspective throughout these uh, hundred episodes. And, you know, we thought a lot about what we wanted to talk about for this milestone episode. And I know the, the three of us, we were considering many different angles for a look back on the four and a half years since we started doing this. Um, but ultimately, we decided that there was nothing to better represent what we have tried to do with these conversations than to instead look forward and talk about the major conversations happening right now across the American theater field. And there's a lot of them. So, you know, here we go. Uh, it, it's been a summer, you guys. Um <laughs> You know, the summer, it feels like just to kind of recap for folks who are maybe not as embedded in the deluge of bad news uh, as we have been. But, you know, early in the summer, there were a lot of really um, scary announcements, Um, theaters closing, like and and some good sized established theaters closing some, you know, enormous institutions doing major layoffs or changes, you know, the the Mark Taper Forum suspended programming for the entire season, upcoming season in L.A. Uh, the Public Theater in New York announced a 19 percent uh, re- staff layoff. Um, BAM in uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music in Brooklyn announced huge layoffs. Um, and I think that what happened, even though the it's been coming for a while, this onslaught of bad news, and those of us in the field have known this is coming for a while, but I think these, you know, high profile headlines coming boom, 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 one after the other really got the attention of the national press in a way that tends to be more focused on Broadway and commercial theater and maybe what's happening at the major institutions on the East Coast. And suddenly there was a lot of coverage. Um, there was an op-ed in the Times about how the government needs to really step up funding for the arts to which, you know, all of us in the trenches go, amen. And yeah, I'm holding my breath for that. Right. <laughs> um, Just don't know, asphyxiate. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, but then that was, I mean, that was followed July, I think it was July 6th. Peter Marks did a big piece in the Washington Post. Theater is in free fall and the pandemic isn't the only thing to blame. That was the big headline. Uh, we had a piece uh, July 23rd in the New York Times from Michael Paulson. A crisis in American theater in America's theaters leaves prestigious stages dark. Um, you know, Broadway World had a big piece on July 24th. Subscription numbers have plummeted across the country, but there might be hope. I'm very excited about the fact that that article acknowledged there might be hope and not one size fits all. Uh, and then American Theater Magazine, also on July 24th, 
released what had clearly been months of reporting from a whole host of journalists um, titled Theater in Crisis, What We're Losing, What Comes Next, um, and really talking to, I think I talked to 70 something theater leaders around the country. Um, and all of this created panic, discussion, argument, social media explosions, but not just on social media, the conversations I've been having with my colleagues and with audience members, I started getting emails from patrons saying, are you okay at forward? I mean, that's really happening. Our uh, colleague, Sarah Young, who's the managing director at American Players Theater to our West and Spring Green, released what I actually thought was an amazingly well done um, sort of blog post for American Players, uh, addressing all this and saying, yeah, things aren't great, but we're, we're going to be fine. We are not in, in crisis mode. We are in rebuilding mode. And there's a difference. Um, I was very, very impressed with that piece. You know, it, it, it's trickling through and it's getting to the audience, these conversations. And that very rarely happens, I think, in our field. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it with you, too, because I think one of my biggest frustrations with this conversation is that it has been so and Mike, you, you know, you've brought this up in the context of American culture and politics so often on this podcast. It is so black and white. It yep. is so everything is terrible and everything is failing and the subscription model doesn't work anymore and audiences are leaving in droves. And, you know, we can get into this, but some of the, the writers are saying part of the blame is because theaters are getting too woke and trying to diversify their programming too much. And, you know, the, the way I put it is, it, an everything is broken approach is no more accurate than a nothing needs fixing approach. And of course, our field, like our politics, like our society, the reality is in the nuance in the middle. We are not good collectively at talking about the nuance. But as someone who's running a theater company right now, I am desperate if we are going to actually have coverage of what's going on in the field that is high profile enough that it is actually being seen and read by people outside of the business. I am desperate for it to more accurately reflect the wide range of what is going on in this field. Because when you say um, in a headline, you know, theaters in free fall, stages are dark, theaters in crisis, it's hard to imagine that that's not impacting the very people that we need to have the field continue to be strong. The artists yeah. who need to stay in the field, the audience members we need to buy a ticket because they're not worried that the theater is gonna go under before their performance. The, the donors that we want to support us who don't feel like they're throwing good money after bad. And the reality is that's not just a branding thing, it's, it's, it's truth. Our theater's not gonna go, oh God, I'm gonna knock on all the wood. But our theater is not in crisis. Our audience numbers are down from the way that we're pre-pandemic, but they're rebuilding. We have a solid financial foundation that we spent many seasons building, um, you know, and we've, and we, I think are weathering the storm just fine, taking some hits, but none that are going to bring us to our knees. And um, I just wish that the, the broader conversation had more recognition that there's no one size fits all path forward for the American yeah. theater. You know, David Leonard, who's the really fine New York Times journalist that edits the New York Times The Morning, has been harping for a year. And the New York, and he recognizes the New York Times as part of the problem uh, about bad news bias. 
Um, okay. And, you know, th- this is this goes to the whole idea of a middle. Um, Jen, you can you can you can put off on the one side, you know, Trump talking about fake news and realize that's silly, while at the same time recognizing there is a genuine bad news bias. I mean, I saw it as a journalist myself. One of the things that was really hard for me in my early years as a theater critic is most of my reviews were not 100,000 percent raves and were not pants. They were mixed reviews. And that doesn't get clicks and head and and it doesn't allow for the kind of headline that you get when you have something that's four stars. They talked about implementing the star system um, like they have at the Chicago Tribune at the Journal Sentinel. I resisted it because I think it's reductive. Um, but that is the way a lot of people think. And with and with theater, as you rightly point out, so much of the news is good. I mean, when the pandemic started, the, the leaders in New York were saying theater will re- rebound on Broadway in 2025 at the earliest. The numbers in Broadway are basically bad. Um, in Wisconsin, and, and we can talk more specifically about this, and I'll defer to the two people who have played a much more important role than I have in making it happen, the two of you, in terms of forward specifically. But look at for I mean, look at Wisconsin. The Milwaukee rep has already raised more than 80 percent of the $75 million they need to, for their new for their new plant and, and theater setup and are going to be breaking ground next year. Northern Sky is about to early retire its debt on the incredibly beautiful Gould Theater that opened a few years ago. Um, Jen, as you rightly point out, Sarah Young in that really lovely piece on American Player Theater said, yeah, okay, our, our audience numbers are not back where they were. And given the cost of materials and the need for more understudies, we're running a deficit. But in relation to our peers, you know, our ticket income is up slightly when it's in, a, in their peer group down 33 percent um, and contributed contributed revenue is up 26 percent when in their peer group it's down 23 percent. So this is not just one theater. This is four major theaters in Wisconsin from all different parts of the state counting forward. Again, I'll let the two of you speak to the ridiculously good numbers there. Um, and, and guess what? It has nothing to do with woke versus not woke programming. Um, by the way, if that's the issue, then how come people like Breck and Odets and Miller did so well? Maybe it's because they're white. Um, but but all four of those theaters in different ways and up against different challenges began thinking hard about diversifying program way before the pandemic. And I think maybe one of the reasons with the so-called woke programming being the problem and we can, again, talk more about this, is some theaters without that history and without that slow, organic build into a more diverse programming tried to leap in head first without having prepared their audience, without having challenged them to grow alongside the theater itself in ways that made sense. Yeah, that, you know, that point there, oh, I'm just going to say um, one article that I think is really worth uh, taking a look at that came out uh, just, you know, the day or two before we recorded this uh, in The Guardian, David Smith in The Guardian um, on August, August 8th, looks like, um, did a piece sort of looking at this broad issue. And uh, maybe, maybe because it's being written for a, a, a publication overseas, it seems to have a little bit more of a broad and nuanced lens and and had some really good thinking about about that particular topic. Because again, some of these articles, I think it was one of the Washington Post ones, you know, really kind of held it up. You know, it's, it's quote unquote woke programming is chasing the audience away. And that's what happened at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And, you know, really throwing that kind of programming and effort to better reflect our society and diversify our field under the bus uh, for a much more complicated series of problems. Um, 
But but the, the article really gets exactly to your point, Mike, is that, you know, many of our companies have been doing this work for a very long time, bringing our audience along with us. Um, and then there are some companies that just all of a sudden jumped in and didn't bring their audience along. And yes, I do think that that, that can be a factor in declining audience. But it's it. But t- the danger, oh, my God, of holding that up as what's to blame for theaters closing across the country now is um, I mean, that, that, that could do generational damage. Yeah, let's just do all Shakespeare and funny green tights and Elizabethan costumes and do nothing else. I mean, give me a break. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I was going to yeah. say, though, of all the, um, the doom and gloom articles, of which there are many that we've cited, um, and there's many more, um, there is always, um, or, or a majority of them, um, it's, it's usually a sentence or two that talks about the companies that are doing okay are the ones that have um, always embraced their community and their community has embraced them. And this goes to programming that, you know, if you quickly, if you came out of the pandemic and suddenly you're a, you're a different theater company than you were prior to the pandemic doing very, very different work that, that could potentially alienate your community. If you are a, uh, a company that um, I'd like to, you know, pat forward on the back a little bit, but a lot of other companies kept doing things during the pandemic and and made their community realize we we are a part of you. And I think that was reciprocated. And the community came back saying, uh, we want you to be a part of us as well. And that's, I, I think that's, you know, I, I don't want to be a, a generalist like we're seeing in some of these articles, but if we want to look at like common denominator of what, what's succeeding and what's not, the companies that are within the fabric of their community are the ones doing better than others. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's right. And I think that, that that's um, a lot of these articles talk about that as uh, if anybody offers any kind of a solution, it's like, oh, but theaters need to figure out how to be connected to their communities. And if they can really uh, build that relationship, then maybe they can recover from this and um, sort of uh, eliding over the fact that, that there are plenty of companies that have been doing that all along and actually are surviving this, you know, this really, really rough time um, in, in fine shape. And, and, it's just your your point, Mike, about bad news bias is exactly right. Um, and it 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 we've seen that all along. I mean, the fact that we struggled so hard to get any kind of um, attention outside of the state of Wisconsin for World Premiere Wisconsin, which was a huge good news story um, that really um, folks didn't want to talk about, um, weren't interested. But you can easily you know get get coverage of of companies folding. Um, is, is part of the problem. And again, it's not, I, I, we need to talk about the companies that are closing. We need to, it's crucial. People need to understand that this is a pivotal time for our field. Right. They need to know that. They need to know that if they care about theater in their community and especially about professional theater that people make their living at, they need to buy a ticket. They need to subscribe, make a donation, volunteer, whatever, whatever they have capacity to do. Um, now is the time because because theaters will go away if folks don't understand that how much we need the audience, how much we need the community support, how much we need 
corporate and foundation. And, you know, I, again, I laugh government support. Um, but <laughs> we have to, 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 to have the nuance in the conversation. I come back to that word again, uh, of not making the story only everything is terrible and failing. It's the same thing, you know, all these headlines, the subscription model is dead. No company is going to continue offering subscriptions in the future. And it's like, well, um, no. And then, you know, I've, I've read, read posts from people talking about how, you know, if you have subscribers, then you have to dumb down all of what you offer and you, you, you're just going to pander to your audience and you're never going to do any exciting and creative art. And I want to say our subscribers here at forward are the reason we can do plays like feeding Beatrice and the amateurs and Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, and all of these really thorny, complicated, challenging plays, because we have this big audience base that trusts us and says, "Yeah, okay, we'll come along for the ride. You do all plays we've never heard of. Okay, we'll trust you. We may not like every single one of them, but you'll do them well, and we'll come back. Well, yeah, isn't that what we're reacting to, though, is this... this um and, and you know, and this is this is American discourse as we know it in 2023. Is that there's, there's such a black and white, you know, and there's the black and white of every every audience member <laughs> in America only wants to be entertained. And of course, we're gonna no, that's not true. And and you're absolutely right, Jen. We people you can you can do. Um, the, the intellectually stimulating, um, heartfelt plays. Um, New, New York and Washington cannot tell us what to program in Madison, Wisconsin, because they don't know our audience. And that goes back to the community and, and, and being a part of it and knowing what they want. And these are or, or hoping that we know what they want. I won't, I won't be so, um, uh, the, the hubris of, I know what the audience wants. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, but we're, we're more connected to it. And there's it, just these, these, these articles that are telling, telling us what we should know and, and, and coming from a point of view that is just not accurate in a lot of this country. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, again, to point to Wisconsin as a shining exception to this rule and piggyback off of what both of you have been saying about community, all four of the theaters I named um, are theaters that did not succumb to, and I won't say anti-community, just not thinking about community model during the pandemic when, you know, no blame here, people were just trying to survive. All four of those theaters tried to keep things going in some way during the pandemic. And, you know, the TRG, um, Arts, which is one of the major arts consultancy organizations in the United States, said, look, one of the real problems, of course, you can't pin everything all on one problem. A lot of these theaters that closed were having problems way before the pandemic. That's yes. also worth remembering. But that they too many of them, if you think of it as an outboard motor, stalled the motor um, and then had a harder time getting it restarted forward. Uh, and in different ways, the rep APT and Northern Sky all kept programming alive of some form and fashion. Um, from the very beginning, um, you know, the summer of 2020. Uh, and I think that's huge, as are things like, I mean, I've been on boards for 20 years. I have never participated, as I have at Forward, in a campaign and initiative toward the end of 2020, where between the board and the advisory company, we divided up the entire donor list. And normally you get a call that time of year and somebody's asking you for money. 
And we were expressly told, you are not to ask for money. The only reason you are making those phone calls is to thank people for showing faith and support in us as an organization. Little things like that, and it weren't, it, it actually wasn't so little, it took me a long time to do. But things like that are super important in maintaining that kind of connection. The fact that Jen Alpoff Gray is at a talkback as our artistic director at every single forward performance. I can't think of another theater company in America that does that. I mean, there are lots of things, or, or that both of you are there greeting audience members before every single show. Like that's just unheard of. And it does, it does make a difference in terms of, uh, in terms of where we're going and in terms of understanding uh, the importance of community. And then one more thing on community before, I, really, at some point, one of you needs to brag about forward. Don't make me do it in terms of our, <laughs> our numbers. Are so, all right, Jen's saying no. I mean, our subscription numbers are so ridiculously good um, in, in a way that you're just not seeing anywhere else, subscription renewals and, and as well as new subscriptions. I mean, it's just it's so gratifying as somebody involved in the organization to see that faith and commitment being demonstrated for the organization. Doesn't mean we don't have problems, blah, blah, blah. But let's again focus on the positive. What I was going to say with community, though, again, to the point of World Premier Wisconsin, which Jen brought up, one of the things I saw through traveling all over the state covering the festival was just how important theater is to various communities that are not Madison, um, that are not Milwaukee, although there too, um, but smaller organizations or community theaters themselves for whom theater is everything. And the idea of theater being embedded in a community, which has a long and distinguished history in Wisconsin, one of the states that pioneered the community theater model, is just, it's tremendous. And I think that, you know, while there are differences in their goals and their programming, uh, and, and the kinds of things that we or other professional theater organizations might do, there is a spillover effect, not just in terms of artists being shared, but also in terms of the way in which we approach what it means to be a part of a community. And I do think Wisconsin in that sense is special. Um, I don't I don't usually take that line. I'm not usually an exceptionalist. This isn't my native state, but it, <laughs> it feels different to me than what I'm seeing in other places. Well, I think there's so much good good stuff to, to chew on there, Mike. Um, a couple of things. I suspect that there are a lot of places in this country that are like this, and we don't know about it because nobody's covering it. And Fair. Yes. Amen. Right? Mm -hmm. Just the same way that nobody outside of people listening to this podcast seems to know what's going on here. So I suspect that we are less... I mean, World Premier Wisconsin as a festival was unique, Right. But in terms of the kinds of connections we're seeing with our audience and all of that, I, I suspect that's happening in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, to your comment about our numbers, you know, being the, the, the pragmatist, the realist that I am, um, they, they are, I mean, we are, they are rebuilding nicely. We are still in a rebuilding mode. They are still down from where we were in 2019. Sure. But, right. but we never dropped as much as, um, you know, it seems the majority of our peers did. And we seem to be rebuilding at a really good clip. So all of those are great signs for encouragement and, and you know, help us have faith that we're going to be fine running deficit budgets for a few years, that we should be able to rebuild before we, you know, um, you know, hit, hit a point of uh, instability with, with our reserves. But your, your point about, about knowing the audience and the importance of theater, just... I, 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 there's a quote I wanted to share um, that was included in that Guardian article earlier this week that I just love because I have seen so many conversations happening about how the only things that are selling 
are the big flashy mm-hmm. known titles broadway musicals and and to be clear they are those are big sellers and for a lot of companies those are the only things that are making them money right now yeah um yep. and, and i get that and i get that in the need to program things that you feel confident the audience really is going to be excited to see and that they have enough knowledge about to want to go buy a ticket but um this article interviewed a woman named Amy Rashford, who's a, a arts management consultant uh, from Virginia. And she said, what I'm hearing is that there are two trains running simultaneously that people want to go see. It's the big, flashy, feel-good musicals, and it's well-written, challenging work. But it's only the well-written and challenging work, the theaters and communities, that either were already doing that or successfully brought their audiences along. What I'm seeing is people are craving that kind of catharsis at the theater. And we talk about that all the time at Forward, catharsis. Mm-hmm. Um, the communal event. Theater is the only one that can get you that. You can't get that from sitting in your living room with Netflix. They want that communal and emotional connection, but they want it from the people they trust. Yeah. And it's that relationship. And it takes work and it takes time. And I, But I think there are a lot of companies. Of course, I'm very proud of our company, but there's a lot of theaters out there that have done the work for many, many years to build that trust with their audience. And that is what has kept them going through this pandemic. That is what has made for many of these companies the subscriber model very effective and supportive, not just of the finances, but of the arts. And um, I... Again, one size fits all is never going to get our field healthier. Um, You know, know, um, since so much of the bad news has been, I mean, objectively is focused on Chicago, where which has lost more theaters than than any other major city. Two examples, Jen, of of your point of productions. I saw. Yes. Tommy was a huge hit at Goodman and it's going to Broadway. The Notebook was a huge hit at Chicago Shakespeare. It's going to Broadway. So those fit that first of the two tiers. But on the second tier, you've got companies that have spent a long time building a loyal relationship. Rivendell Theater Company, which is the sort of Chicago equivalent of Renaissance Theater Works in Milwaukee. It's sort of a women-oriented company um, and a Red Orchid Theater Company. And those two companies, Rivendell programmed a show called Mother House, which extended three times and is being brought back again in the fall. It's it's It has a lot of humor in it, but it's a spiky sort of dark uh, feminist dystopia tale of abuse within a family. Uh, and at a Red Orchid, you know, um, forward alum Marty Goble directed a production of Is God Is, not at, by anybody's stretch of imagination an easy play. I mean, people are murdered and there's suicide. and There's all kinds of stuff in it. Again, a huge hit um, because the audience was ready for it because a Red Orchid had built that trust within uh, within its audience. And, you know, so you can, and they were both, you know, kind of gutsy shows to do even for those two companies. And yet they were incredibly successful. So that's the two polls that you're discussing. It, it leads me to um, want to touch on uh, another article that came out this week, which I, in a way, I don't want to give way too much. I don't want to give way too much oxygen to it because, um, uh, because I'm frustrated by it. But uh, long story short, um, there was an opinion piece in the Washington Post this week called Why Theater in Its Current Form Does Not Deserve to be Saved. And um, on the one hand, yay, that the Washington Post gave op-ed page space to someone talking about theater. But um, if you want to talk about a, a very, you know, 
black and white view of of our field, this is maybe as you know clear as it it gets. The the essential argument of it, it's it's written by a playwright, um, and who has a, a a lot of very valid critiques of things that are happening in our field. But the general argument is. Um, all theater administration, like all theaters, theater companies, they should all go away. And all of the money that is given to those theaters should just be granted to individual artists who will put on shows themselves and will get much better art and better support all of the artists that work on it. I'm being a little bit reductive of it because I don't want to read the entire article out loud. Go, go find it yourself. But that, that really is, is the point. And um, it did, you know, uh, it frustrated me as a theater administrator who also considers myself to be an artist and not actually on the opposite team <laughs> from, right. from the artists that we hire. Um, and a lot of the critiques that the, the author listed were critiques of some very specific companies that, you know, and some very specific practices that certainly deserve critique, but that in, in no way apply to all of the theater companies across the country, of course. Um, but what, what I want to quote is um, our dear friend, Jake Penner, who has been on this podcast before, um, used to be a member of our advisory company and um, an associate director here at Forward, has directed several shows, is directing Clyde's for us this fall. Um, he's just now opening a production at American Players Theater as a director. Um, but as, as is often the case with Jake, he articulated a response to that piece so beautifully. And I just want to read a little quote because I think it's so um, to the point. Mm -hmm. He said, I think we're watching a bubble pop and I don't think it's over. I think realistically it's only just begun. I think the model is and has for some time now broken and that much Monica, that's the author and I can agree on. But I also think what we're about to do is not helpful. What's about to happen is a lot more op-ed articles are going to be written arguing that yes, in fact, something needs to change and change soon. And here's what that change should be. To which we're all going to say, no, no, how could you think that that's the model that needs to come next? You know what? I'm going to write my own op-ed laying out a model. And on and on we'll go. There's no next op-ed or TCG conference laying out the next model. What theaters are going to have to do next is get really, really honest with themselves about what unique thing they have to offer the marketplace. The unique thing that sets them apart from every theater with their own unique thing and build a plan around that thing. Yay. And Mic drop. <laughs> Mic drop, Jake Penner. Yeah. Um, and also partly it's in the field acknowledging that turnover is healthy. Right. Change is healthy. Change is healthy. Right now we are seeing an unhealthy level of turnover and change. And, and we right. need that very clear about that. There is too much change, too much turnover, too many companies closing all at once. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous time for the field. No question. We need healthy a healthy ecosystem to employ people so that they stay in the field and patrons have a place to go and all of that. But what Jake, I think, is pointing out is the inherent dangers of an overreaction to the crisis and um, or an oversimplification. Right. And, and a simplistic solution. Mm -hmm. Well, and, it's, and yeah. I mean, it chaps my hide is another example of the decline of expertise, um, which which, you know, I know we're not playing either or on this podcast, but this is a far right wing problem, um, a sort of faux populism, which thinks that experts are all idiots and that we don't need them. And it's just not true. Um, I mean, the two people I'm staring at on this Zoom screen 
um, are huge experts in their field. I've put in a life's worth of work. And, you know, as I've said before in print, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, and really for the kinds of jobs the two of you do, it's more like a 50,000 hour rule, makes sense. Like you spend a lot of time and you've got some innate talent. And it does make a difference in terms of your ability to make good decisions, which is why this particular organization made so many good decisions during the course of the pandemic. I mean, I just, that's just, I have not read this article and I am not going to go look for it, Jen. I'm glad I'm behind the Washington Post firewall because that's just, I'm sorry, it just sounds silly. Well, it's frustrating because you read it and you hear the frustration that this playwright has for the way the field is working for them and for their, their peers. And that is so real and so, so valid and so um, needful of expression and and to be addressed, um, but again, it's it, it's th- it's sort of throwing a, a a sort of bomb in the marketplace and saying maybe this will get some attention. And I I appreciate that. And and there is always, as we know, a place and an, and a value in those kinds of voices. I think I think given how little real estate there is. Uh, figuratively and literally for coverage of what's going on in our field, you know, this is what's going to get the clicks. And it's because it is so um, extremist. It's, it's, it's just, it's hugely unrealistic. It's hugely unrealistic. And um, we need, we need realistic conversations about how we're going to address the problems that we're all facing we need, we, we need that desperately. And so instead the, the forum for, um, the desperately needed conversation is, is going to be all buzzing about this, this thing that really should have been a blog post that to, to express some frustration and get some people talking and thinking. Um, so, you know, (laughs) you know, we've been going for a long time already on this conversation. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what's going on, but maybe we need to save some of it for a future conversation. And partly because I do want to just take a moment with the two of you to talk about the fact that we have been doing this for a hundred episodes and that's pretty great and i feel pretty privileged to have been able to spend some time talking with the two of you about these these big thorny issues twice I, I i love this i have so enjoyed continuing this i will have to say though if 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 i thought it was just the three of us talking you know and and sometimes our producer scott hayden um I would um, I would have called it short about two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. What is what is the most gratifying to me is when I'm when I'm out in the world when I'm when I'm you know at the grocery store in Madison, Wisconsin, and somebody says, "I recognize that voice. You're on uh, on a podcast, right?" <laughs> or people that know us um, will will comment on on some of our topics. That's the most gratifying Indeed. to me. I mean, for me, the the four and a half years on this podcast overlap almost exactly my involvement with Forward Theater as an actual member mm-hmm. of the advisory company. Um, and so it's hard for me to separate the two because the ways in which I've grown through talking to the two of you twice a month are similar to the ways in which my entire thinking about what theater is and can be 
how you build an organization, how you reach out to and embed yourself within a community, what kinds of shows you can do. I mean, I, I'm in a, such a different place than the closer to the bomb throwers, Jen, that you were talking about, um, that, that I might have been four and a half years ago. And so I'm grateful to the podcast and our listeners for that, of course. I'm just grateful for the forward community for um, using this as yet another of the many ways in which it really takes seriously the idea of being part of a larger community. That's a special, special thing. Yeah. Well, as we, um, dare I say, look forward um, <laughs> to, I don't know, maybe the next hundred episodes, we'll see. We'll keep doing this for as long as it feels valuable for um, the folks who, who tune in. Um, one thing we're gonna experiment with uh, is, is switching things up and trying this as a monthly podcast instead of a twice monthly uh, podcast. Um, we always have plenty to talk about, but uh, we want to we want to try this out and see if it if it serves us, see how we like it, but also more importantly, see how those of you listening like it. So, if you've got opinions about whether you um, uh, want to see us continue twice monthly or kind of enjoy having it be just once a month, um, we will certainly uh, want to be hearing from you about that, but we're going to give it a try. So you'll hear us again in about a month for episode 101. Our theater season will be in full swing by then. Um, and I'm sure that the things we talked about today will, none of them have gone away <laughs> by then. We should be so lucky. Um, but we will say for now that that is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. I'm Jen Alpoff gray and I'm Julie Swenson. I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, and I'm sorry I'm not going to be cute today. Scott Hayden has produced all 100 of these episodes. He has solved so many technical problems, allowing us to bring this to you that none of you are even aware of. He is a, just a great human being, and I feel so lucky to have him as, as part of our team. Anyway, as Scott would want me to tell you before I go away, <laughs> you can share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter. As always, folks, theater, it's theater forward spelled, theater spelled with an E-R. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us. But I want to make sure that you hear on our 100th episode. Boy, we'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment. Uh, contact us, email, grab my arm. I want to hear what you're thinking about our podcast. And we are so grateful to have you listening. We will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation. <laughs>